0: And welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan, and this is episode 200 of the Point of Everything podcast seems like a milestone. I don't know how big a milestone it is, but thanks a lot for pressing play and listening. And hopefully uh, you've done that with another couple of episodes in the archives, all free, all available, wherever you listen to podcasts. I really, really enjoy talking to interesting acts, interesting musicians, people in the music industry. And so that was my main reasoning behind who I wanted as the guest on the 200th episode. I had never talked to Leagues O'Toole, Before, So it seemed only natural to uh, ask him if he would be interested in chatting and it was a really, really nice discussion that we had. I thought that it it was going to be a little bit nostalgic about some of the many things that Leagues has done in his long and varied music career. Uh, I sent him an outline of what we might talk about, touching on the likes of uh, Planksty and the Gloaming and his Foggy Notions magazine that he ran in the mid-naughties, but spoiler alert, we didn't get to any of that. This was mostly a chat about the current and the future projects. That Leagues has going on mostly involving Music Town, which takes place April 15th to 25th, all online. It's a program to engage audiences in imaginative ways as artists continue to create exciting work despite challenges. So you can check out musictown.ie and you'll hear Leagues talking about some of the amazing things that are going to be happening uh, in that respect. Leagues is someone that I've admired for a long time. He Puts on some really, really great shows and faced some adversity in the past year, which could have gotten him down, but he showed resilience and it sounds like he's back stronger than ever with really, really big plans. So we talk about all that and more and stick around to the end Here, a really, really great Daniel Johnston story from a show that Leagues put on um, back in the day that involves comic books, Coke Zero, Wrathmines, Whelan's, um, and various other bits and pieces. Uh, So yeah, uh, I don't think I have anything else really to say about episode 200. Hopefully there'll be a lot more to come and hopefully you've enjoyed some of the acts that we've had in the past. I know a lot of them are kind of new names to people but hopefully it's helped spread the word of just what a great scene it is in ireland at the moment which is something that leagues talks about as well so without further ado this is leagues o'toole on episode 200 of the point of everything podcast i saw that you had watched the finding jack charlton documentary uh, over the weekend it was on virgin media it was released last year kind of documented jack charlton's um his contribution to ireland and also his dementia struggles um i thought the documentary was amazing what what did you make of it
1: just i saw the second half of it last night and i watched it and i had been in my mind to watch it but i think i'd popped out for a walk and kind of forgotten it was really well made just the sort of the two world cups and and the euros that he was involved in just mirrored so many things. It just mirrored the mood of Irish society at the time, and you kind of forgotten like what an impact that this man and that team had had on Irish society, and just how they'd engaged us more than any other sort of cultural event of those times. So it was really well done, really well made. I am a a Man United fan, have been all my life, and one of my favourite, I I've obviously feel very connected to the Irish players that played for the team, um, my favourite of those, but the one I feel is most emotionally connected to is Paul McGrath so seeing Paul McGrath in the interview you know, a couple of brilliant things, I mean he talked about how when the teams were lining up Jack always told him, always smile at the centre forward at the start of the game which he obviously did with Roberto Lagio. I uh, just thought that was a beautiful thing to say and then, but just Paul talking about how he wasn't just playing for his country. He wasn't just playing for his team. He was actually playing for for Jack uh, because he loved him so much. And um, I just thought it was really beautiful, really emotional. Like completely in floods of tears watching watching that segment of it. So yeah, really really enjoyed it. I need to see the whole thing. The dementia thing is very very sad. I think that's something I'm, I'm so terrified of. Um, dementia, experiencing it myself or someone close to me experiencing, and I haven't been in that situation. Um, But the one thing that that gave me some solace from watching it was how well his wife Pat looked after him and how well she came across uh, and the way she was just sort of constantly feeding him with memories, some of which he seemed to sort of recognise and others he was just like, did I do that? Is that me? But it was just a really interesting and very intimate thing to document. So it was, yeah, it was a beautiful documentary. really, really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, like the moment when Jack Charlton's face just lights up when, when he sees Paul McGrath uh, on, on the screen. Yeah. Like It's a really magical moment. Yeah. But were you like me? Yeah. Were you so excited at the penalty shootout Romania and it was backed with a Langham track, The Wild Rover?
1: Yeah, I saw Langham tweeting about that earlier, that they were going to be included. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. yeah, that's a big thrill for them. I mean, if you're going to be soundtracked on a documentary an Irish cultural moment to pay so i be that I'm not going to get much better than that really
0: so I, I suppose that I'm talking to you at a good time because uh you've been working on the music town program over the past couple of weeks months I don't know how long you've put into it but um I'll, I'll just read out what it's about it's uh committed to continuing to support artists at this difficult time dublin city council in association with foggy notions and aiken promotions uh has unveiled a program for music town 2021 which celebrates community durability and adaptability uh tell me about how you got involved you've you've uh, been doing it for a couple of years have you and you just got the call again been doing
1: it for three or four years but i was doing it I was doing it really as an employee of Aiken Promotions, which I'm not anymore. Obviously, it didn't happen in April of last year. We postponed it to September. Then, obviously, the pandemic became more of a long-term prospect for everyone, and I no longer worked for Aikens. Um, but we had a conversation about what we could do with it because I felt, personally, it was important to keep going because it was money into the into the, into the pockets of... Um, Producers and artists working in in um, in music um, uh, and the arts. So we figured out a way of doing it where we did. We, I you know have my own company now, which I formed uh, in September of last year, and we did it together as a as a as a, as a joint venture in association with Dublin City Council but it was purely online. So we looked at our program and we just approached everyone we had committed funding to in the program and asked them, can you make this an online event? And I think about two thirds of them could. Uh, So we just ran with that. Then going into this year, obviously we were a bit more prepared. We knew there was no point. Well, certainly by January, we knew there was no point in asking people to create um, gig gigs with physical audience um, that really they should just focus on creating an online event. It's a very difficult um ask really because they're two completely different things they're two completely different economies um a gig in fact uh the people just go to a venue and watch something is in theory a much cheaper thing to create an event where you which involves cameras directors editing all of that stuff is much more expensive so it was it's a really big ask ask to to um to put a program together of, of 15 or 16 events. with a, and, and Music Town's not a big, it's not a big budget. It's not a Patrick's Day-type festival. It's pretty, pretty low-key. But we contacted, we put out an open call uh, proposal and we contacted people who'd previously worked with and uh, submitted proposals. And, um, and you know, the it's incredible. As I say, I, I, I put a focus on the word durability, the words durability and adaptability, because that's what's required um, in this time, and that's how people responded: absolute determination, uh, flexibility, um, the ability to think creatively in a time which isn't very conducive to thinking cre- creatively. It's a time of, it is a sense of fatigue and exhaustion, and for a lot of people, depression during this time. I've experienced all those things myself over the past year. So that demand for creativity seems really sometimes impossible, but the response was incredible. Maybe it's always been this way. Maybe I just have more access to people and more access to information. But right now in Ireland, it just feels like a, an, abs- an absolute sort of creative boom uh, right across the arts. And not just within each segment of the arts, not just within literature or just within music or just within theater, but the cross communication between all of those worlds. Um, seems stronger. It's a little bit like music, you know, you're a music journalist and and, uh, you write about music and your podcast is is largely about music. You can see how there's a a, a dissolvement of genre within music. And I think that's happening broadly across the arts as well. Of course, there are distinctly things that are theatre, there are books, there is music and songs. But this cross-discipline world that's just evolving all the time is so interesting. So we got we put a program together, we got incredible proposals, we talked it through with a lot of people. How it would we done some people were making making shows where there were six or seven people in six or seven different parts of the country, somehow putting it all together? Um, there's people who are outside of the country, such as Connie from Fears, you know. She's got an album coming out, but she can't tour her album. She can't perform it live to an audience. Uh, So she's creating a show and she's such a visual. Brilliant visual mind. That's going to be I know it's going to be great. She's creating a show that she's going to transmit from London. You know, David Kitts put together an incredible, you know, he'd done this collaboration with Kevin Barry and he's building a show around that. Um, with uh, filmmakers and visual artists and fantastic musicians like Jennifer Walsh and Katie Kim, so we've got our yeah we've got our program and and it'll all it'll all go online. Uh, it's it's pretty much all online. There's one event that's not online called the Big Mistake actually, and that's a um, uh, fantastic guy called Jonathan Pearson from Cork actually, who uh, I've worked with on a number of occasions. He's heavily involved in uh, contemporary classical music. And he's put together a thing where uh, called The Big Mistake uh, where he's uh, working with a couple of other producers and they're going to project a performance by the Totally Made Up Orchestra, which is a sort of a large 30 piece group of musicians aged very young to quite elderly. Uh, performing an improv piece he's going to project that onto iconic Dublin buildings for three days across the city so that's not not a, that's not an online event That's something a bit different but it's a beautiful thing to do and yeah that's just it you know we we, we want to keep the thing going um even if it means doing it online and, and, and there not being an audience keep spreading that small bit of money that we have access to around keep the creative ideas coming but the one thing that I learned from last year was that, yeah, it was disappointing not to have an audience at any of these events, but I tried to sort of focus on the positives. And one of the positives was, it's an opportunity actually to create these documents, to create films, uh, which are um, uh, enduring pieces of work, archivable pieces of work, pieces of work that ultimately are going to document this very, very bizarre time. Uh, that we're living in, and a very, very bizarre time specifically for the arts. Um, So what we're doing is, by having these online events, is we are building up um, a really, really nice and fascinating archive, which will be relevant, um, will be relevant forever, you know. So so that's something that interests me. And I think even when we do, when we do go back to, hopefully next year, we go back to a music town where there's audience-based events that um, we'll continue to make films and we'll continue to make visual documents. Um, I think because of COVID, um, the idea of making concert films, uh, videos, online events, live streams, has accelerated. So our skills and our ability uh, and the quality uh, of what we're able to produce here is really accelerated. So that's something that we should continue to do.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in there. I, I guess just sticking with kind of the music town, events right now. I I was wondering how it had come together. You explained that people kind of sent in proposals as opposed to I was thinking like were you just sitting down with your ideas hat on, just thinking who you wanted to work with, who you thought might have good ideas. But that's an interesting way of kind of doing it. Almost like um what's it like? It's it's maybe it's kind of like a literary event or something where they're kind of thinking of different people who would work together. I think that would be an interesting way of going forward, kind of creating a bespoke event because, you know, there's people who, you know, in different genres, as, as you alluded to, who you could imagine just working together um, and creating something different and thinking outside their box. I think for so many people, it's so easy just to keep doing what you're doing. And if you open it up to. Uh, new artists and, you know, talking new ideas, younger people, talking to older people and vice versa, I think you're going to get something interesting. Like the the obvious event that grabbed my eye was David Kitt and uh, Kevin Barry who are uh, presenting Cornelina, which sounds like it's going to be a fascinating event. Like was that was just something that David Kitt had put together himself. It wasn't you just going, these two guys.
1: No, David Kitt and Kevin collaborated on this some some time ago but they never had the money to actually put on an event and I think they may have applied for some funding um, but didn't receive it now I have known Kitzer for a long time and have followed his music from day one and the same with Kevin Barry been reading his books from day one I I, I love his work and Barry's a really interesting writer because when you read interviews with him he quite often he quite often cites music as being sort of primary art form and that things like literature follow that. And I've never really understood what he said, but when I read his most recent book, um, which is his third book of short stories, he hadn't he hadn't published a short story book in a, in a good few years because he'd been concentrating on novels. He's a brilliant, brilliant short story writer. And I read his new book, and it's even better than the first two books in terms of just his skill with words has just increased and it's refined. And I... As I was reading one of the stories, I was like, every word was so perfectly placed in terms of, I started reading it out loud. You know, sometimes when you're reading a book and you, 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 you're so sort of um, enraptured by the language, you read it out loud to hear to hear more. And I started reading it out loud and was come. this is actually, I know what he's getting at. This is actually music. He's writing music here with this book. So he's fascinated with music and um, they... Kids just mentioned it to me on the phone. I've been on the phone to him on and off because he's been living in, he was living in Paris for a while. Now he's living in Kerry. He's been coming and going. He's not really known, you know, where he's gonna end up next. And he's been sort of, you know, like every other artist trying to stay on his toes and, and, and be creative and get funding and projects and he's releasing stuff. And so I'd call him every sort of three or four months to see what he was up to. So I knew the Kevin Barry thing was happening. I knew he was working on it with him. I said to him, I'm still hoping to do Music Town. I want to keep Music Town going. So if you have a project like the Kevin Barry thing or a similar project, hit me up at the time. So he did. He came back to me uh, when we announced Music Town and he said he has this Kevin Barry project and what he wants to do is turn it into um, a a bigger event that involves a lot more people. And um, so he's really in touch with um, I think Kitch has still got a really good handle on contemporary music. Uh, the fact that he invited Jennifer Walsh, um, I think, is really, really interesting. I've only discovered her recently. She's an incredible contemporary experimental composer. Um, of course, he loves Katie Kim. And he's played with her a lot through the years. And he's met some new people in Kerry who are involved uh, in this project as well. And he's Frank Sweeney and Colleen O'Connell, all these great visual artists. So he's he's put, putting this whole thing together, and it's and it's it's it's, it's going to be. I've no idea to be honest what it's going to be like. All I know is it's it's a thing that they've wrote, written together, and they've created a fictional, they've created some sort of fictional village, fictional place with fictional characters, and this is going to be expressed through through music in some shape or form.
0: Who knows? It's just like people who you trust and you know that they're going to put together yeah. something special. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly,
0: yeah. A
1: couple of other ones I'll mention um, just on that programme. Adrian Crowley, uh, again, he's he's just releasing a new album and he's putting together a show, which is just going to perform in his home. Um, but he's going to get Niall McCann to direct it. And Niall's a really, really good filmmaker. He made a documentary about Aiden, uh, about Adrian um, called The Science of Ghosts. And he made a documentary about the chemical underground label some years ago. He also made a documentary about Luke Haynes uh, from New York Irish director. So he's going to come into Adrian's home and create a, a live performance in his home, which I think is going to be really, really beautiful. And it's one what, what's interesting with Music Town this year is it's a it's a much bigger platform for actual directors. Uh, you know, and we've also got Bob Gallagher, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. Who, you know, has made his name as a music video director slash producer with Girlband and Villagers and so on. But to my mind, he's going to be a great filmmaker. Um, you know, he studied under Werner Herzog. His ambition is to make proper films. But he's so he's so immersed. He's so immersed in music. And he's not just immersed in the bands that we mentioned there, who he's made videos for. He's really, really immersed himself in traditional Irish culture. So much so he's actually trained to be a traditional Irish singer. He's trained himself to be a traditional Irish singer. So he's got two events in the program. One, collaborating with Junior Brother, where essentially he's going to make a video for a Junior Brother song. And he has a concept for the video. And the money that we give him, it's basically going to pay for the production of this video and in return, he's going to give us this event where Ronan performs within the video set. And I don't want to give it away because I know what the I, I know what his idea for the video set is, but it's going to be something very, very intimate. And then they'll do a QA and a within the context of this of this video location. Uh, that's going to be great. And then, of course, he has an event, um, a fascinating one where he's working with a number of musicians and singers um, that's going to be essentially an exploration of sexual identity in traditional Irish music and literature and that's going to be a fascinating event and not something that I've ever come across before that sort of study um, so, uh, so it's, it's a nice time for filmmakers, directors, visual artists um, to present their work and to explore their relationships with musicians
0: yeah it sounds uh really really interesting looking forward to uh checking out um a load of the events that are happening at music yeah. town over the next yeah. month uh runs from april 15th to the 25th so look forward to that has it been nice on a personal and professional level for you to kind of get back to normality in some sense kind of booking these gigs and i know that you've uh, rescheduled and announced some new shows as well in uh you know further into the future later this year or early uh next year
1: yeah i haven't st- i haven't really stopped uh, i didn't really stop um i mean i lost my job that i was nearly 10 years in, in in end of april of last year and um that was i knew there was probably a strong possibility that was going to happen And I certainly liked the idea of being able to go independent again. But at the same time, when these things happen, and plus all this other stuff was going on, and everyone was, it was a very, very scary virus uh, had entered our world. Even though I kind of had, kind of, was kind of feeling positive about that, it was still a shock when it happened. And I still felt quite depressed about it when it happened. I think I went to bed for about two weeks, and I just wanted to sleep. As I was lying in bed, I was thinking about all the really excellent artists that I'd worked with and that I'd built up this roster of, I don't know, three to four hundred really great artists that I really liked. I never really had any bad experiences working with. And wouldn't it be nice to continue to work with them? And it'd be an interesting test of my relationship with them to contact their agents and see how they felt about that. So I got out of bed and I got on the phone and I rang all the agents who represent the artists I work with. And there was a real sense of empathy at that moment in the music industry in that lots of people had lost their jobs uh, or had friends who'd lost their jobs or had to let people go or didn't know when they were going to work again. Um, And that there would be casualties involved in this whole thing. Venues would disappear. Independent promoters would disappear. Some artists could even disappear. You know, I had a really great had great conversations with all the agents I work with. So, yeah, it was just a case of, you know, how you were going to work it. Some of it would be co-promote with Bacon's. I would continue doing my work with, with Timo at UMAC, but I would do a lot of my own shows just as Foggy Notions. And I formed a company and I, with two partners, um, Julie and David. And um, and we, we, we wanted to take the opportunity to... We wanted to continue working with those acts, but we wanted to do a lot more than that. And we wanted to essentially get involved in all the things we're interested in, which is right across the arts, films, books, podcasts, um, everything. We want Foggy Notions to be a record label. So we're gonna start releasing records. we're going to publish literature and we are going to make podcasts. So that's what we're doing. And, and it's just going to be a much sort of broader sort of culture agency or something like that. We will continue to promote. We're going to be promoting a lot of shows in 2022 and in 2023. I'm really excited about some of the shows that I've confirmed. And I'm really excited about some of the shows that I'm trying to pull off. But we're going to do other the stuff. And... It was really great working with Akins. I learned an awful lot about the music industry. But prior to that, I was always a freelance person, self-employed person. And I'm just better off in that situation. I learned loads from Aikens. I developed loads of relationships and contacts, some great friends who work there. And I'm happy to continue to work with them because they are ultimately an independent company themselves uh, with a family background. I am trying to avoid the hyper capitalistic end of the music industry from which no good comes, in my opinion. <laughs> and, um, so I'm, ex- I'm excited. I haven't stopped working. It has been a pretty grueling year because we haven't really made any money. We've done a couple of jobs. Um, so so one of the other good things about the, pand- the pandemic weird way to frame that There are very few good things about the pandemic but one of the good sort of um, consequences perhaps for me personally was I've always wanted to spend more time uh, involved in curating and, and working with artists in a different context beyond the commercial ticket selling concert scenario so I did the, obviously do the music town thing so I've continued to do that but I'm also going to be working as an associate producer in the Pavilion Theatre in, in in Dunleary, uh, I'm collaborating uh, this year with the Midsummer Festival in Cork, curating an event for them. I'm collaborating with the um, Regional Cultural Centre in Letterkenny and Donegal, working on a, an arts project with them, and they've all come to me and invited me to do this kind of this kind of work, um, which involves um, assisting and curating. Uh, artists with a view to creating new work and much of it in a kind of a cross-disciplinary context. And it's something I've been thinking about for a very long time. It's something I've done in the past. I uh, did it in the sort of early 2000s uh, with the wonky events that I would have staged um, in association with the Fifth Gallery in the Guinness Storehouse. And I've always tried to, whenever possible, inject a sense of curation into a lot of the concerts and the lineups that we've put together. So uh, I'm going to continue to do this work and I'm hoping that these events that we and projects that we start in 2021 are going to be annual events that we continue to grow and and build up archives of work. And just, it's just fun, you know, it's fun working with artists in that context. Live music is fun up to a point, but it does get serious. Um, It is a business and there's money at stake and you can lose money pretty quickly. So you've got to be very, very careful and prudent about that. Um, But that said, I'm working on some shows for 2022. If I could pull off and involve some of my favorite bands ever. So I'm really excited about that. I still get the same buzz. I get a tremendous buzz booking a show, confirming a show. I get an enormous buzz from that. I get an enormous buzz from... I'm not a particularly nostalgic person, but I do like talking to people about music. And I do get a great buzz from someone who has a memory of a show that I promoted that is, you know, like a, they divulge a personal memory um, that it, you know, happened at a sort of a pertinent period of their life, um, or it's just one of the favorite shows that they went to or whatever, you know. So creating memory sounds like a really kind of awful hallmarky type thing to say, but it's a nice thing to be involved with also, and um, to share that and to hear that back. We've, a lot of shows, But we've a lot of other projects as well. And we've our Music Town stuff. We've our collaborations that we're working on with the the, uh, art centres around the country. We're going to release some records this year. Um, I think there'll be more sort of, um, it'll be vinyl, uh, artefact-based projects to begin with. But we would like to work with new artists and have a new artist that we could possibly help develop over a period of time. Um, But for the time being, it's going to be artefact-based stuff archival or just kind of like weird weird format releases Um, but we're really excited about getting stuck into that Um, we also want to work with visual artists photographers painters want to work uh with clothing designers um and we want to very much want to work with filmmakers but obviously it's a it's a that's a world of enormous finance so we've got to figure out ways of doing that um we are applying for funding and we're you know that's a 2020 was a really weird year year for musicians in Ireland because the people who were involved in the funding world prior to all of this really existed within largely within jazz, within contemporary classical music, partly within the traditional arts. all of a sudden you have all these rock musicians and singer-songwriters and even DJs and electronic artists kind of going. How the fuck do you apply for funding? Like, how do we fill out these applications? How do we get money off these people? And it's not easy. There's a lot of um, hoop jumping and so on involved in all of that. And there's a language and a vernacular that one has to learn to take the boxes of the cultural institutions that um, pull the purse strings to this sort of funding. Uh, So it's not easy. And I haven't necessarily been that heavily involved in that world outside of the music town thing. I've never really applied for anything. Um, I've always existed in the sell tickets and, and make the money that way. And um, uh, so so that's a learning experience. That can be a very draining experience as well. And I really empathize with a lot of artists who even though it's fantastic that this funding, uh, you know, 25 million and X amount of this and X amount of that different sectors is, is being made available to people. It's quite a draining experience applying for, for the money and um, it's also an incredibly deflating experience um, not being successful in those applications and I think we have to bear in mind all of this stuff you know there's mental health implications with all of this as well Um, these are all factors we have to we have to bear in mind when dealing with the arts in Ireland and dealing with a recovery program for artists musicians and artists involved right across the board in relation to the pandemic. I'm waffling Thank on you. and you ask me these questions and i go off on terrible tangents and...
0: no 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 you're, you're doing the work for me that's great um uh, i like your kind of whole you're able to see everything that's involved you know everything that's being interlinked is that something that you were kind of that you would have wanted to do anyway in the past couple of years had you felt it a little bit jaded and also do you find just the like it's such a behemoth now the live music experience and you know that there's always the next thing the next thing the next bigger thing did you feel for a while anyway that you needed to pull back a little bit
1: well i I, I've, i've yeah i mean i've wanted to be involved in um i've wanted to be involved in these projects for a very long time i've wanted to be involved in these projects all my life i did get very very sucked into the live music industry and as you say it's a behemoth but it's an industry that is broken and it's been broken pre-pandemic um it's been skating on thin ice for a very very long time because it's become so capitalistic so everything for a long time the live music industry and this is partly to do with the implications of streaming um, and recorded music as well whereas there's been such everyone's had to lean so heavily on live music industry in terms of Revenue and people making a living from music, um, which many can't uh, through through recorded music anymore. So it's been. So what's happened is um, the industry um, escalated so much that it became everything became based on a sellout. So. If you're a promoter and an agent offers you an act, a new act, your offer, your financial offer, which you send with a breakdown of a budget on an Excel sheet or whatever, has to be for a sell out show. So what happens when the show doesn't sell out? The promoter loses money. What happens in the next tour when the artist comes back to the promoter, the agent comes back and say, hey, do you want to do the next, there's a new album, there's a new touring cycle, do you want to do the next show? I lost money on that show. Yeah, but they're bigger now. They're bigger now. It's going to sell out. Sell me a sellout offer. Always a sellout offer. The whole industry is based on sellout offers. And that's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. First of all, there should be a level of the industry that caters for artists. who can make a living as professional musicians that can go around the world and play to 200 people. Because if you can go around the world and play to 200 people in Argentina or somewhere in Australia or different parts of Europe, North America, that to me is an incredible success story and that your music means a lot to people and that you have a, a, a career with longevity and, and, and that's just a success story. And that should be considered a success story. But it's not considered a success story in the live music industry, unless you're growing to a bigger venue and you're going from 400 people to 1,500 people to 3,000 people to selling out arenas and being placed very high up on festival bills. Everything is geared towards that. And that's not right. And people are going to lose money. And artists' careers are going to be very, very short-lived when they buy into this trajectory early on and realize I can't fulfill this, I can't sell out my debut tour, I can't sell out my second tour, I'm just not that big. Does that mean that I'm crap? Does that mean that I'm not worthy of this industry? Does that mean I should just stop touring? Does that mean that my agent's going to drop me? Does that mean my record label's going to drop me? Does that mean I should just stop making music? And I just think that's a really, really bad premise um, for business based in the arts. Um And I think that's been happening for a long time. And I would love to re-enter, for us all to re-enter the live music industry, whether it's as a punter or a promoter or an artist, um, and that it was a post-COVID, a new industry with a new, brighter outlook um, that was fairer, um, where we could all take a moment to appreciate the fact that, We're working in a really, really exciting industry and we're surrounded by artists and we're still able to make some money doing that and have careers and and make our livings from that and just appreciate that and be grateful for that and enjoy that without constantly having to push everyone, constantly having to push artists to sell out, constantly having to push promoters to sell out, constantly having this unrealistic ideal of what success is. And I'd love to see that happen. I don't know if it will. It probably won't, to be honest. But you know, um, certainly within the independent sector, we could all try to focus a little bit more on that, and, um, uh, and and not be so competitive, and not be so demanding uh, of this unrealistic success. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, do do you think that it's going to be almost like two different types of live music experience after all of this? Like, I, I don't know what you think it's going to be like after this. Like, are gigs going to go back to the way they were? And will you have that kind of lower level stuff and then the like... Uh, I don't know, kind of more mainstream, uh, less interesting as well. Uh, in a way, kind of um, experience. Do you think there's going to be different tiers to it? Maybe there was already different tiers to festivals and gigs. I don't know. I,
1: I don't know. I mean, it really depends. There's loads of problems within, you know, festival programming, and I'm sure you're aware of how it returns. I, 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 I don't know. I can, you can only be. You can only sort of be. You can only really control your own destiny, I suppose. And that's the way I'm looking at it. I just know what I want now. Um, and I think a lot more people will be coming back into the industry knowing what they want. And I think some, I think a lot of people might be similar to me in their point of view of what, what is important about the industry and what we should focus on and what we, some of the pitfalls we should try to avoid. So, But I can only really speak for myself and I know what I want to do. You know, to some degree, I don't really care what happens with other people, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, stop the likes of Live Nation um, continuing towards this sort of juggernaut, monopolistic view of, of, of the world and the industry. Um, all I can do is do stuff that I find creatively satisfying and get to do it with two of my friends. I get to do it with hundreds and hundreds of artists that I admire and get to share the experience with the people who come to the shows that's enough. Like that's just brilliant. So when you're stressed about money and you're stressed about not selling enough tickets and you're stressed about not selling out, you forget these things. Sometimes as a promoter, you can't even watch the show. You're so stressed. You're literally just basing up and down backstage, or you don't even go to the show because you're so upset and worried. And what's the point in having a job in the music industry based on the idea that you love music and you love the arts if you can't even enjoy the experience? So I had to think about that because I've been there where I haven't enjoyed the experience. Really, really not enjoyed it at times. it, It had become very, very stressful. So I want to go back to a place where I'm independent and I can enjoy it and it feels like I'm sharing the experience again. And that's what I'm hoping to do. But as I say, it's not going to be all about concerts anymore. It's going to be about other stuff that we do.
0: Great. Um, Do do you have some, just instantly going back to concerts, so do you have some shows in mind that you hold up as like, this was the best show that I've put on, this is like the best band that I've seen live? Do do, do you have those that you can pull from instantly? Any that you want to to, to tip us off to?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a fair few... I can't definitively say what would be favorite shows or anything like that, but there's some really, when I think about it, I'm really, I mean, I'm just, my memory's not great on a lot of stuff. And my timeline is particularly bad in terms of the things that I've been involved in. But if I'm just to sort of try and instinctively answer your question, one that really just jumped into my mind was I did this show, this guy from Manchester contacted me. This is sort of mid 2000s. This is around sort of original Foggy Notions period of concerts. And this guy, promoter in England from Manchester, called me and he said, um, I have a show for you with Daniel Johnston. Now, I'd been listening to his records for a long time since I was quite young. And he'd never been to Ireland and he hadn't been touring much up to this point. But he had this show. And his band was um, Mark Linkus, the late uh, Mark Linkus of Sparkle Horse, uh, James McNew from Yola Tango, Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club, and um, Scout Niblet. And there was someone else, possibly, uh, was it Jad Fair, one of those guys. And they were his band, and they were just doing... Daniel Johnson songs so we did it for two nights in in and um shows are really really great but I can't remember if it was the first night or the second night but we lost uh Daniel Johnston he traveled with his brother Dick Johnston who was this kind of like American he was sort of officially Daniel's carer but he was sort of like a sort of you know real like Ned Flandersy type Midwestern character, and um, he was fine. Like he was nice to deal with. There was no problems. And part of the deal with 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 um with Daniel Johnson is you've got to bring him as a promoter. Is you've got to bring him to a comic book shop when he's playing the shows, and so we. I can't if it was actually in the contract or not, but it was, it was made clear that we had to bring Daniel to the, to the comic book. So we did that, and there was a comic book uh, store in Temple Bar at the time, which was just sort of secondhand, and it was, a bit, it was big enough space, and they had, like, thousands and thousands of just back catalogue, everything from, you know, Marvel and DC and 2000 and AD and just everything you want. It was a really, really great place, actually. So we brought Daniel down there. And he went in and he was like, yes, this is the perfect, You know, this is better than like being brought to Forbidden Planet or whatever, like this is like, this is the stuff I'm looking for, you know, 60s stuff in there, everything. So he's picking up piles of comics and then he's getting distracted and he sees another section and he goes over and he's dropping the comics on the floor and he's leaving piles of comics that had been previously filed in different little sort of piles around the floor and all over the shop. And he was really, really making a mess at this comic book store. To the point where I went up to the guy behind the, the can, cash register and I said, hey, I'm very sorry about the mess. And the guy said, is that Daniel Johnston? And I said, yeah. And he goes, don't worry about it. Uh, you, you know, guys are legends, don't worry about it, like, as long as he's enjoying himself. So he ended up spending, like, 500 euro on comics anyway. So the guy was over the moon. So he's got these two big bags, shopping bags of comics, and we're walking back to Wexford Street, where Whelan's is, and another part of the ritual of the day with Daniel was because he, he was diabetic was that he could have a strawberry milkshake. So we went to Eddie Rockets, which is directly across the road from Whelan's and I'm there with Daniel and Dick and we get his strawberry milkshake. And then the plan was to go back to the venue and sort of sound check with the rest of the group and so on. Dick went to the bathroom and I went up to, to the counter to pay for the milkshake. And within Two minutes, Daniel had disappeared. Obviously, I thought he'd just gone across the road back into the venue. So I went over to the venue. He's not there. Walk up and down the street. Just, there's no sign of him. An hour goes by. He's He's gone. And he's a vulnerable person. And he's disappeared. And everyone is absolutely freaked out. We've about five or six search parties driving all around that Portobello and Rat Mines and Wexford Street and Camden Street it's stressful and it's like what's you know but in the back of my mind i figure someone is going to recognize him and go hey you're daniel johnston and lo and behold <clears throat> a woman walking through Ratmine's village sees this man sitting on the curb on the main road reading comics i was like what's that guy doing takes a closer look goes oh my god that's daniel johnston approaches him and said hey you're daniel johnston are you playing you're playing a show tonight and he said, yeah, I'm lost. I don't know where the club is. And she said, oh, I think you're playing in Wheelands. I'll bring you down. And literally, this woman, hand in hand, walks into the bar in Wheelands with Daniel Johnson and um, returns him safe and sound. And the, show, the shows were really, really incredible because he, Daniel was able to perform, but I don't think he would have been able to do it without being surrounded by these other guys who'd grown up in his music and revered him had developed again this personal relationship with them on the road and they really cared for him and i even just remember small things like being in the dressing room and mark linkus checking the fridge to make sure that the cans of coke were coke zero and not sugary coke because daniel was diabetic but things like that you know you're like looking like these guys are like you know indie music icons in themselves but they're there like checking daniel's rider is okay and looking after him and caring for him like he was their little brother, and um, and then just being on stage and supporting him musically and allowing him to play all these great songs, giving him the facility to do that. was a very, very heartwarming experience. So they're just memories. I mean, I'm a you know, member of the concert, but I also remember the incidents and the weirdness around it, and just, you know, but it's a nice story to, to have of him, um, and... To occasionally, those kind of concerts will fall in your lap, and someone will give you the opportunity to work with someone. And they're not the biggest concerts in the world, but they're really, really special experiences sometimes.
0: Great. Um, I, I could listen to stories like that all day and we could, we could have talked about uh, so much more yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as well that you've done over your long career. But it's great as well just to be able to talk to someone like you who has such a storied past, but talk mostly about the future or the current, you know, the current and the future and what you have coming up. So it's great to see that you're still um, like hard at work and hard planning new things and new experiences and thinking about something different to the norm. I'm really interested in the past but I'm not
1: a necessarily a nostalgic person, but I I, I still discover, a, a, I love discovering music from the past. I get the same buzz from discovering something from the past when they do something uh, from the present. But I am always want to do new stuff. And that's what I've always kind of, you know, I don't have a very sensible, I haven't had a very sensible career. I've kind of gone from one kind of project to another and it's never been planned out. I never had a plan coming out of school. I just sort of followed my nose and followed the things that I was interested in I'm going to continue to do that but I want to do it with my friends in that capacity and really really relish every second of it and never get into a situation where I'm just bogged down and worried and it's becoming a negative experience I want to just enjoy it you know and just keep finding new music and keep discovering old music and just keep working on different kind of projects with artists really
0: Great. Um, Do you have any uh, recommendations of new music that you want to uh, give a shout out to to end on anything that you've um, been blown away by lately? Oh, (laughs) God. I
1: I have a list. I have like a word file on my desktop that I'm talking to you on that has the names of 50 different artists that I am chasing for concerts right now. Um, and i have going to do concerts with some of them and some of them will work with other promoters uh, but I'll keep listening to the music and I'm not going to list them off to you but I spend about two days of every week looking for recommendations I have friends who just text me in the middle of the night recommendations new YouTube clips and then obviously I spend a lot of time on Twitter looking for recommendations and then people who work within the industry send me recommendations or ask me if I interested in working with stuff and then of course most days I read I subscribe to all the sort of online music magazines and I get their newsletters and I, and, I, and I listen to as much music as I can so I'm constantly working off a list of 50 to 100 new artists that I'm interested in but I'll keep the names to myself for now
0: <laughs> that's uh, fair reveal enough. reveal yeah. them when
1: I'm able to announce concerts with them
0: okay so if we see a foggy notions gig being uh, being announced we know that like that's this the is process that you really really love yeah 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 great exactly. great yeah. cool listen leagues i really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully we'll get to do it again we'll dive into the nostalgia and the past at some stage hopefully um... yeah
1: absolutely love to do that yeah 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 great a great time cool. thanks yeah. so much thank you thanks man